Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 214, and today's guests are Bob Mason and Andy Feinberg, co-founders and managing partners of Argon Ventures. Early to market, it can sometimes mean the kiss of death for a company. However, if you get the timing right, it's a competitive advantage and an opportunity to build a massive company. In this episode, we've got a great story about a company that was in this exact scenario, yet they executed, scaled, and remain a pillar tech company in the industry today. The company I'm talking about is Brightcove, and in today's interview, we discuss the company's full life cycle journey. Brightcove was founded by Bob and serial entrepreneur Jeremy Allaire. They were early pioneers in the world of online video back in 2004. Andy also joined the company very early on as an executive and eventually served as its CEO. Thus, in this interview, we are able to get into all the weeds from the very early days of the company to scaling to its eventual IPO. And as a bonus, and this is so fun, Bob provided a really cool video that shares the very first prototype of Brightcove's concept back in 2004. So we have the video embedded as part of the show notes on VentureFizz. It's really cool to check out how much they actually got right in terms of their predictions of online video and how a lot of the concepts in this prototype still hold true close to 20 years later. So make sure you check it out. Bob and Andy are now running Argon Ventures, a pre-seed venture fund, which is leading investments in intelligent industry solutions. In this episode of our podcast, we also cover lots of other great topics, like their background stories, including some great details from Bob's time at ATG and Andy's experience at Lycos, how Bob got into investing and his experience with Project 11 and as a mentor at Techstars, all the details on Argon Ventures and the types of companies and investments they are targeting, what it's like being a CEO of a publicly traded company, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, this week's episode is sponsored by MarketMuse, a content intelligence platform that sets the standard for content quality. Their AI-powered software enables companies to create predictably better content at scale that increases traffic and engagement, improves productivity, and drives revenue. Get more out of your content with packages starting at just $79 a month. Plus, you can get 10% off select packages by using our code FIZZ20 at checkout. Go to marketmuse.com to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Bob and Andy. Bob and Andy, thanks so much for joining us. Good morning, Keith. Well, we have a lot to talk about. You know, typically I start off with something kind of off the beaten path, but uh, we, we've got some major anchor companies to talk about, uh, and I'm super excited to get into all the weeds, all the weeds of Brightcove and that founding story. And obviously, it's still a pillar tech company in the Boston tech scene. And the two of you started a venture capital firm, so whew, we got a lot to cover. So um, why don't we start off with you, Bob, uh, and then we'll ask the same to you, Andy. But um, but so where did you grow up and you know, what, what were you like as a child? Yeah, so uh, I was actually born in L.A., um, lived there for a few years, um, but I basically grew up here in Massachusetts, went to college at Worcester Polytech here in Massachusetts. My entire professional career, except for a summer internship at Microsoft, has been in here in Massachusetts. So I really sort of uh, feel local, um, even though technically I was born and raised for a few years um, uh, over on the West Coast. Um, you know, to be honest, I was probably, you know, a pretty classic um, shy, introverted, you know, kid that didn't have a lot of friends uh, growing up until high school. Um, and in high school, I connected with a, a great group of 
of friends that loved hiking and being outdoors and playing D and D, um, and that was like I think <laughs> a lot of of my high school was either being outside um, hiking and camping or playing D and D and um, sort of creating these uh, little micro worlds of of our own. Um, I'd always been sort of uh, connected with uh, computers. Um, uh, my father passed away in high school, but um, he was an engineer by training. He, um, he actually, before he passed away, was working on a PhD in computer science. So there was always a computer around the house. Mm -hmm. um, I started with an Apple IIe. Nice. And, um, and always kind of like tinkered and worked on it and figured things out and started computer programming. And, you know, occasionally I would, you know, break the computer in some way by screwing it up. Um, and of course I would have to figure out how to uh, get it all fixed um, before my father would wake up. Uh, so that was a good driver uh, as well. Um, and so as I graduated um, sort of high school, you know, I was always thought I wanted to sort of go into science and engineering. Um, and originally I thought I wanted to be an electrical engineer um, and build like robots and stuff. But then I realized as I started my classes at WPI that like the physical world, like, you know, uh, is very complicated and hard. Um, mm -hmm. And so I leaned into my computer science studies and, and sort of where I could, you know, build things and not be sort of constrained by uh, the physical reality of our world. And that was uh, sort of my beginning. And you had a fun little project at WPI where you like, uh dismantled or you did something with a Nintendo power glove back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, uh, my WPI is a, an amazing uh, university. It's very sort of project-based uh, education. So you, you always learn by sort of doing projects. Um, and in your senior year, you do a thesis, which they call your major qualifying project. And for myself and my, um, it was actually my roommates, uh, we did a homebrew VR system, um, which- Wow. Yeah, which was back in 1994, of all things. Right. So we were, we were a little ahead of the curve. Um, and what we did is we used this open source uh, software for, um, for rendering on an old desktop PC. And we hacked together a Nintendo Power Glove with its flex sensors and put it into the back of the computer through the RS-232 port. If people in the old school uh, remember those interfaces. And... Um, our belief was at the time that virtual reality was too hard for the layperson, and that you needed to be like a hardcore coder to kind of put these virtual worlds together. And so we actually built a, a, a pretty nice uh, though, you know, limited system where you could use gestures to actually kind of paint and create virtual objects um, in space uh, using the Nintendo Power Glove. Wow, like said, that's super cool. Yeah, we were a little ahead of our time. Um, totally. <laughs> I, I think VR is still too hard for most people yeah, uh, exactly. to, to use and build, but um, uh, perhaps it's getting there. Um, one lesson I learned out of that process as well is the power of marketing. Um, so my friends and I, as a, you always have to do a presentation um, and we, we didn't want to like get up in front of a whole big crowd and like do a traditional computer science talk. So we actually produced a music video um, instead. So we <laughs> took all the graphics that could be generated out of our system and put it to a, a really awesome soundtrack. And we just put the, you know, the VCR tape into the, the system and hit play and, and sat down. Um, and at the end of that process, we actually won the sort of computer science award for best, you know, MQP for that year. Um, and it was not 
because we actually had the best engineering. It was just because, you know, people got really excited about like this music video that we produced in the snazzy yeah. graphics. So yeah. uh, very early on, I learned the power of marketing is sometimes trumps uh, technology and engineering. That's so cool. Uh, Andy, how about your story? So where'd you grow up? What were you like as a child? Yeah, so so disclaimer first, my, my children are petrified that you're giving an opportunity, you're giving me an opportunity to, to speak on a microphone. Um, not because they're they're afraid of what I might say, but I've been known to sort of fill all the space in a room. So uh, <laughs> cut, me, cut me off, please, uh, when I've gone on for too long. Um, I, I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, and um, uh, have spent almost my entire life in the in the Northeast, uh, at least where I've lived. I've traveled around a lot, both for work and for 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 personal um, all around the world. But um, I grew up in New Haven. Um, uh, I went to Tufts up here, up here in Boston, and then, uh, you know, as you know, I went to law school at Cornell, and then worked back in New Haven and and New York, and then up here in Boston. And so, you know, my world has sort of always been been marked by terrible weather, uh, at least during the winter months. Um, you know, my my um, uh, sort of background is very different from Bob's. In fact, I'm not sure I understood half of the references that Bob was making. Uh, I'm not a software engineer by any means, um, nor did nor did I play with computers sort of growing up. Um, I come from sort of the other the other side of the table, if you will. Um, my mom was a, a school psychologist uh, who had an affiliation with Yale, and my dad ran a small um, but very successful business um, in New Haven in the service industry, uh, industrial um, uniform leasing, um, and. Uh, you know, I, I grew up um, sort of um, spending time uh, with both of their sort of professional endeavors. Uh, on my mom's side, I was a bit of a, a guinea pig for lots of the early uh, tests on, you know, what's wrong with children, uh, you know, in pre-adolescent stages. And she never would tell me sort of how I fared on those exams. So I've always been, you know, wondering, is there something actually wrong with me? Um, and on my dad's side, um, you know, I, I, I can't claim to have, um, you know, spent every waking minute working uh, in my dad's business. Um, but he did make a point of making sure that when I had free time, um, I helped out whenever I could. Uh, and I had a really broad experience there. Um, you know, I rode a route truck. Uh, I worked um, for, for a period uh, on a sewing line, repairing uniforms and affixing uh, labels and, and names and such. Um, I loaded um, washing machine, industrial washing machines really early in the morning. Um, for me, the, the hardest job by far um, and something that really, really taught me a lot. Um, one summer uh, I spent trying to be a salesperson uh, mm. and there's nothing as humbling uh, or, or as he would say character building uh, as being rejected 30 times a day. Uh, without a sale to make. Um, and so that, that taught me a lot. Um, but, you know, for me, I had a, a really wide range of interests. Um, you know, I read a lot of books. Um, I did, you know, have, have a good number of friends, some of whom I stay in close contact with to this day uh, and learned, learned a lot and was challenged a lot by, by friends. Um, and that, that continues to this day. Um, even, you know, especially in my relationship with Bob, just learning Learning from him and 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 learning new things is something that um, I think is really important. So I'll self I'll self monitor myself right there. Well, well, so so why did you decide to go down the path of studying law and, and practicing law? 
Yeah, so um, my experience at, at Tufts first um, was um, sort of really important to me. Um, uh, you know, I, I went really intending to get sort of a broad liberal arts education. Um, I had lots of interests and, you know, I wasn't um, of a mind to sort of limit myself in one particular area. And so, um, yeah, I majored in English and in history and I took a lot of biology courses um, and a whole wide range of things. Um, and I also, um, for me, one of the sort of formative experiences, I got very involved with the um, daily newspaper um, at the school. And in many ways, um, it was sort of like a startup because you know every single day you had something that you had to accomplish. You had to get the paper out every day. Um, but at the same time, you had to figure out how to balance sort of the longer term uh, goals of what the paper was trying to accomplish. And my senior year, um, I was the editor in chief of the paper and sort of learning how to manage you know, sort of lots of different people and, and, and lead them sort of in the accomplishment of their daily tasks while keeping an eye on the longer range goals of the paper um, was, was, you know, really, really helpful. Um, my dad, to answer your question, sort of bringing it all together, um, my dad had the good fortune to sell his business while I was in school. Uh, and so um, I didn't know what else to do. Um, mm -hmm. And I knew that um, I wasn't done yet um, learning. Um, and what I've now learned is you're never done learning. Um, but um, at, at school, I didn't, I didn't know that for sure. Um, and what I really wanted to study was um, how people um, sort of resolve their, their problems, how societies organize themselves. Um, and what I you know, found that I was pretty good at was reading and writing and really trying to understand what was going on um, in, in, you know, sort of organizations and group settings and how people related to each other. And so I had the opportunity to go to law school um, and I did. And uh, I, I actually really love law school. It's a fantastic mm -hmm. experience for me. Good. Well, let's uh, dive into the tech industry. So Bob, you, uh, how did you get involved with ATG, which, you know, is very, very successful company, went public, was acquired by Oracle. So, so how, did, how did you get involved? Because you were involved very early in the company. Yeah, so I got involved with ATG while I was still in university. So I was um, in my senior year. Um, honestly, I was just looking for some part-time work. Um, and I noticed on a, uh, a news group job board uh, that Joe Chung, the co-founder and CTO, posted, you know, a little, you know, blurb about, you know, working in projects um, at their company. And tying it back to my senior thesis, I had recalled seeing a little article written about ATG, um, which stands for Art Technology Group in Wired Magazine, um, and about a VR exhibit that they had built um, at the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry. And I was like, oh, well, here's a place, you know, where I could actually, um, you know, have some fun and, and relevance. Um, so I submitted my resume and um, uh, while well, I was working on my uh, senior thesis and they invited me to come in for a job interview. And it's really funny because I didn't really know what a startup was like startups were not in the common vernacular in college universities, uh, uh, you know, in the mid 90s. And so I had been very used to going through traditional interviews with like full suit and tie and like printed resume, going to General Electric or, you know, Microsoft, um, where I had worked uh, the previous summer. Uh, and so I, I, I drive into Harvard Square from uh, Worcester um, 
I go to this like kind of back alley to where uh, the ATG offices where they're sort of subleasing from an architectural firm. Um, and it was mid-February and Joe opens the door. And my first impression is he's in, um, I think a ripped jeans and a t-shirt. Um, and the first thing he said to me is like, oh, Bob, it's great to, you know, to meet you and come on in. I had hoped you would meet the rest of the team today, but they decided to go snowboarding instead. And that was kind of my first foray, like, where am I? Like, what is this company? Um, but at that, at that very, very beginning, um, ATG essentially was like an interactive agency. So they did a lot of just like really interesting project oriented work. Um, and it just so happens that um, after I graduated college, you know, I was presented essentially with this life choice of I could go work at Microsoft who had given me a, a full-time offer, or I could go work for this ragtag bunch of guys in Harvard Square that told me they couldn't quite figure out how to pay the bills all the time, but we could like work on interesting um, projects. And for some naively optimistic reason, I, I chose the path of, of ATG. And, and so at the beginning there, um, we did do just like, you know, we did like an interactive kiosk for movie phone. Um, if you're kind of, remember Oh yeah, them, totally fast, remember that. Yep. You know, tickets. Um, we actually built um, for the advertising agency, Shy at Day, some very, very um, early, but I think groundbreaking work around virtual offices um, and sort of online groupware before the kind of the web uh, existed with like avatars and document sharing. Um, but this thing called the web started taking <laughs> off. Um, and so we started um, getting projects to build um, uh, interesting websites. Um, we did a project in Japan. Uh, we did another project for movie phone where you could buy tickets, you know, online through the through a website. Um, and through that, we realized that there weren't any really great tools or platforms to go build websites. Um, and Joe and, and Jeet Singh, the co-founder and uh, CEO, had this very compelling vision about using our services work as a learning platform to build enterprise software. And so we eventually essentially morphed into this product centric company. And I was um, at ATG for a full decade um, as a senior software architect. So I was a you know, hardcore coder uh, by day, uh, leading engineering teams, but you, know, you kind of wear many different hats um, over that period of time. Um, and you know, we did grow the company from roughly the 10 of us from when I joined to over 1,200 employees worldwide, um, $6 billion public market cap, a kind of the height of the dot-com period. Um, but you know, of course, hit now my first of several global economic crises with the dot-com crash. <laughs> right. yeah. um, we did have to lay off over 900 employees mm -hmm. on a worldwide basis, um, but um, you know, we did keep driving innovation in the product, um, uh, figured out sustainable business models. Um, there was new leadership. Bob Burke came on board. He, uh, several years after I left, he started acquiring some other companies that were related to the e-commerce space um, that we had built our sort of enterprise software platform around. And as you mentioned, um, eventually Oracle bought uh, the company for a billion dollars. Um, so it's nice that the legacy we built actually had long-term lasting value. I, amazingly, I still have friends that work at in the ATG um, division of Oracle Commerce. Wow, that's um, fascinating. Uh, perhaps even, yeah, perhaps even more scary, the core code I wrote um, back in the day still powers a lot of uh, online e-commerce uh, systems that, that Oracle uh, now sells. That's funny. But, but 
but in that process, just one last sort of tidbit, you know, I also learned a really equal lesson that even like through success, um, you really need to have perseverance and almost like a core belief system to, to build a successful startup. Um, even though we had, you know, gone public and, um, you know, so, you know, hundreds of customers and sort of powered the early version of the web with personalized websites and, and e-commerce stores. There was a period of time when there was like, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 of us. Um, uh, none of us got paid for six months. Um, you know, as a, you know, in my mid twenties, I gave my life savings to the company so we could pay some bills. Um, and no one really left the company. Yeah. You know, it's like, we, we fundamentally believed on what we were building and what we could do together as a team. And, and obviously there's a fine line between being crazy good and crazy bad. And it, you know, perhaps could have just as easily tipped, uh, you know, the wrong way. Um, but if we hadn't had this belief in each other and, and what was happening within the market, like it would have been easy for everyone to walk away and, and not have seen the success on the other side. Yeah. No, it was a great, great anchor company back in the day. So um, speaking of anchor company, so Andy, so you were with Lycos, which, you know, was a premier portal search engine back in the day that um, was definitely a, a one of the high flyers of the, the web. So you were there, according to your LinkedIn, from 99 to 2004. So we had Bob Davis on the podcast a ways back. So I would imagine if you were VP and general counsel, you were probably involved in some of the, you know, go-go times of Lycos trying to continue to build a monster company. Um, yeah, and any anytime you mention Bob, who, um, you know, I think the world of my, my adrenaline picks up and, and all of a sudden, like, I, I'm, I'm ready to go. Um, he has more energy than, than I think anybody I've ever met in my life. Um, but um, uh, yeah, no, so I, I, as I have been sort of throughout my career, I was incredibly fortunate. Um, uh, I was, um, uh, you know, I had I'd practiced sort of big law in New York and then moved up here uh, to Boston with my wife um, when when we first started having children, and um, uh, one of my clients was a really close friend from the time I was seven or eight years old who uh, was at Lycos, and I you know had the the great fortune of being able to help um, the company out outside for a couple of years. And um, my friend finally convinced me, um, his name's Je Jeff Snyder, uh, he's, he's local and has had a lot of, a lot of great experiences too. Um, he, he finally convinced me to come join him. Uh, and uh, I did join Lycos in 99. So, you know, a couple of years after Lycos had gone public uh, and that was just an incredible experience, um, both, both an incredible sort of learning experience in terms of, you know, what was happening with the web and what, um, you know, an in incredible fast moving tech company looks like. Um, but also, um, you know, learning a lot from the people, um, you know, Bob, as, as you know, is a special guy. Um, I learned a huge amount from Ted Phillip, um, who was the original um, uh, uh, CFO at the company um, and also a, a, a real backbone. Um, I'll never forget when I, when I sort of came, came to, to try to join, um, I had to interview with Ted and Ted really only asked me one question, which was, you know, imagine it's, you know, three o'clock in the morning and, 
you know, you're one of the only people left in the office and we have to get all the bills out, you know, even though you're this big fancy lawyer with a grad degree, you know, would you be willing to lick the envelopes to get them out so that we can get paid? And, you know, of course the answer was, was right, uh, was yes, um, but um, which I fortunately gave him, um, but, um, you know, it, it sort of, the fact that he asked the question sort of taught me something about the ethos of, you know, how to get a company going. And um, really the, the notion that, you know, nobody's, nobody's too proud to do anything um, and everybody has to really pitch in and, and do whatever it takes really is the phrase to, to get what needs to be done, done. Um, and that's really what it was like. Um, you, you know, um, everybody of course had, had titles and roles and jobs. Um, but whatever we needed to do to, to accomplish the goal, that's what everybody did. Everybody pitched in. Um, and it was, it was a thrilling ride. Like us was an incredible, just an incredible experience and a wonderful company. Um, as you know, it was sold tw at least twice during my tenure. Um, and I suppose it's been sold a couple, a couple times since. Um, still exists today, doesn't it? Don't it they still have a little it, office it, in Waltham or something? It, it, it does. Um, and I, like everybody else, I have lots of Lycos paraphernalia around the house. Um, but actually a very, very quick, funny anecdote when I was at Bright Cove, um, uh, the second company that we sold Lycos to was Daum, which is a, a large Korean internet um, portal. Um, and a couple of years later, when I was at Bright Cove, I was in Seoul um, negotiating a, a deal um, for, uh, for Bright Cove. And uh, it was with Daum, and I was in what Daum called the Lycos conference room. Uh, and there were pictures of all the old Lycos um, leaders, as, as well as the black dog, of course, in the room. Uh, and I, I had a very, you know, if you can imagine a 12 hour time change and not knowing the language. And there I am in the collision of worlds. It was That's sort of funny. funny. Yeah. All comes together. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about Brightco, which is you know still publicly traded and an anchor company in the Boston tech scene. So, so, um, so Bob, you were you know one of the founders. Um, Andy, you joined as one of the founding executives. Uh, so, so talk about how did the idea come about, and you know what was the industry like then? Because <laughs> yeah, it's a little hard to reflect back now. What sixteen years? Uh, right. Um, but I left ATG in the winter of 2004, and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. I didn't really have a, a specific um, goal, but I had been thinking, and like I think many other people around that time period, around kind of the future of broadband, and and the web had been built on sort of effectively images and text, um, and and video was was going to be probably the next media. Um, Around that time period as well, like TiVo started coming on board. There was other experiments with like Microsoft had this media center. So you could start seeing these inklings of like consumers relationship and behavior change around uh, online video. And it just so happens that through my ATG uh, network, um, which is you know, an amazing alumni network, I got introduced to General uh, to Jeremy Allaire, um, who is you know the co-founder and CEO of Brightcove. And Jeremy was an EIR at General Catalyst, um, and he had been thinking about the exact same ideas. Um, and so we connected in the spring of two thousand and four, and we basically spent the rest of that year building a relationship and and really trying to figure out what this thing could be. Um, 
uh, I actually have a really fun video um, that's a, a capture of the very first sort of mock-up and prototype of what our vision of like internet television was going to be like from the summer of, of 2004. Perhaps we can share a link of that. Of that. I would um, love to watch that, absolutely. Because yeah. I would love um, to see how ahead of the curve you were and how yeah. it's relevant to today, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's some things we got right, some things I think were, were off, but, um, but regardless, um, uh, Jeremy in particular, his previous role had been uh, the CTO at Macromedia. And if you recall, Macromedia um, owned at the time the flash runtime before it was sort of bought up and uh, managed by Adobe. And one of the, the last projects that um, Jeremy and many others of the team sort of worked on was putting a video codec in the flash runtime. And so Jeremy specifically knew from that inside point of view that over the next you know, two years, there would essentially be a ubiquitous video uh, playback capability all across the globe. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And that was kind of the, the technical insight, the product insight that he had uh, and, and therefore, you know, we sort of, we just really connected and like writing product documentation, visioning, working on this uh, sort of prototype of what the system could look like and built a trusted relationship. And so um, at the end of 2004, we assembled a team, um, which actually was composed of a lot of ATG folks um, that I worked with. Um, and some of those people have now gone on to also build really incredible companies. Um, my, our good friend, uh, Tarif Kawaf, he's the president at our studio, um, which happens to be um, uh, founded by JJ Allaire, uh, Jeremy's brother. So it's connected there. Um, Ashley Streb, uh, who runs uh, Rocket Insights. So that was founded by a number of um, uh, Brightcove uh, folks, early employees as well. And uh, General Catalyst and uh, Excel Partners uh, led our first uh, Series A at the end of 2004. So we, our first day in an office was, uh, I think, January 3rd, 2005. Um, and that's when we kind of set off on this path to go figure out what the heck we're going to go do in the online video space. Um, and Andy joined us probably within the first couple of months, um, maybe February, maybe March at the latest. Um, and uh, it was a, you know, a great partnership uh, of building a company. And, and I was there for eight years as the CTO um, and, uh, and happy to sort of dive into you know, more elements of, of that as well. Yeah, well, so Andy, what was your role when you joined? I'm sure it was very broad because early stage of the company. Yeah, so I, I had really um, been looking for um, three things. I, I left Lycos at the very end of 2004 after the second sale. Um, and um, I, you know, one thing that I, I really wanted to go find was the opportunity to um, push the envelope on all the ways in which I could contribute to, to a company. Um, I had had a lot of um, Wonderful experiences at Lycos, leading deals, closing deals, um, creating strategic partnerships, and also helping with strategy in the C-suite, and um, just a, a number of different different elements. Um, and so, I really wanted to find a place where I could I could push the envelope across all of those areas and more, and and see the the best way that I could contribute. Um, the second is, um, you know, I had joined. Um, 
Lycos, as I described, sort of after, after it had gone public and when it was already a thriving sort of um, uh, company. And I wanted to um, experience the, the early arc of a journey um, and, and really help um, in the creation of a, of a culture at a company and figuring out how to build a overall go-to-market strategy and, and participate in sort of helping put together that, that early arc and, and have that experience. And then, then last, just briefly, um, you know, I was also really interested, I, I had a particular hypothesis in what was coming in um, digital media, um, both because of the um, advances, which I really did understand in, in the development of infrastructure and connectivity, as well as um, the ability to do some of the things that, that Bob described that Jeremy had really been working on. Um, and um, I had a real passion for helping um, figure out how um, professional media um, could transition into new revenue streams. Um, and so I got incredibly fortunate. I got connected by um, sort of several people, including like Bill Schnoor um, and, and with help from Bob Davis um, and also David Orfeo, General Catalyst. I connected to Bob and to Jeremy um, and uh, got very excited about the opportunity. I shared with them, you know, sort of my interest in being able to participate across lots of different swim lanes um, to see how much I could contribute. And they were, you know, totally on board, um, which was fantastic for me. Um, and so my role, I came in with a um, business and legal affairs sort of formal title, but with the understanding that I'd participate, um, you know, as far as, as my contributions would let me. Um, and pretty much over, over the course of time, um, and I'm sure we'll talk more about the breakout journey. Um, but over the course of time, I, I held pretty much every role at the company that did not involve writing computer code, um, which uh, was for everybody's benefit. So, so Bob, like the the technical problem you were solving at that point in time was very challenging. Like there was very minimal video on the web, so you had to create this technology that supported this with very different bandwidth. <laughs> options. Yeah, I mean, our, our vision was was really based on this idea that um, online video should be sort of democratic in nature, um, that like any organization of any size should be able to use um, a set of cloud-based tools, even though we didn't sort of think about it as in this vernacular of the cloud, um, and get online and be able to sort of launch and publish video. Um, so prior to when we started Brightcode, there, there were some, I would say, characterized as early experiments around online video, like uh, Victoria's Secret, I think, did a lot of like big splashes with like putting their runway shows online. Um, MTV had this product called Overdrive, where you could start watching some music videos online. But they all essentially required 100% custom engineering, like you needed to hire like a really top notch engineering team, you need to do these really complicated uh, uh, contracts with, with CDN content delivery network providers like Akamai. And it just, it was a huge amount of friction to just get anything published. And so our vision from day one was literally, you could sign up uh, as a sort of professional organization. Uh, you could get these out of the box templates, you could upload your video and you could publish and be online with video in like less than 15 minutes. Like that was kind of like the original idea. I would say that um, 
you know, the first few years as many startups do, we kind of meandered in the desert of trying to find true product market fit. Um, you know, we would, you know, march, uh, you know, very decisively uh, in a direction of like a particular business model or technology strategy. You know, we, we built a lot of different systems for different use cases around online video in the early days. You could like download to rent, um, you could stream to own, there was advertising, like a whole bunch of different mixes. And, and as we would get closer and closer, um, you know, to one of those, we'd realize it was a mirage, <laughs> you know, like what we thought was an opportunity actually wasn't. And so we would have to, you know, pivot or sort of change directions, but we always had kind of had this North mm. star that like there, there could be a cloud-based platform that allowed organizations to publish and distribute um, professional digital media. Um, and so uh, over a number of years of those different forms of experimentation, I think coalescing within the market, we, we really honed into a very traditional SaaS-driven business. Um, so um, obviously YouTube, you know, as a cultural and uh, amazing phenomenon sort of owns, uh, you know, the sort of public consumption of online video. Um, but Brightcove has built a really meaningful business um, around enabling um, professional uh, organizations, uh, major global corporations and media companies to kind of build their own uh, direct consumer uh, branded online video experiences. And they do it 100% through sort of a, a cloud-based uh, platform. And Andy, what was the go-to-market like? I mean, you know, you were involved from the early days and then expansion internationally. So, so I mean, companies were like, why do we need video on our website? Like, you know, so how was it the go-to-market to, you know, have a customer adoption element to to the equation? Yeah, it's, it's a... a great question and it took um, lots of years to sort of suss out um, how to approach it and what was compelling and and the reality is I think it's different depending upon you know what sort of business we were focused on as a customer segment um, and you know sort of location and scale etc um, and so you know for um, large media organizations, um, you know, they, they felt a really compelling need to diversify their revenue streams and to, to you know, make sure that they, um, you know, weren't left way behind um, in terms of, of what was going to happen, which nobody, nobody really knew, you know, what would happen to newspapers, what would happen to, um, you know, cable TV, uh, et cetera. And, you know, part of the, the go-to-market there was figuring out, okay, how do we fit in to sell, um, you, you know, a, pro a, a service which for them, you, you know, enables them to remain profitable and to expand their revenues. Um, and yet at, at the same time, um, doesn't completely disenfranchise them from the technical solution. Um, because, you know, then, then they create a whole different sort of set of risks for themselves. Um, and, you, you know, later on, um, we also had to figure out what the appeal was or the approach was for um, non-media companies. Um, and a large part of, of Brightco's business to this day um, includes a whole realm of folks who aren't trying to monetize the video itself, um, but instead are using video as a key marketing tool or um, a way of internal communications or training, et cetera. And it's a completely different go-to-market there, right? Yeah. Um, comes out of a different budget. Um, 
for us, the international um, expansion, um, and, and for me in particular, um, was incredibly um, important. Um, we saw, and, and this is something that, that we continue to believe deeply at, at Argonne, and um, you know, it's something maybe we, we can talk about a little later, um, but we saw a real opportunity um, to take advantage of um, other um, markets that might have slightly different um, you know, sort of te technology footprints or um, infrastructure um, systems, um, but where, you know, we could be a first mover, um, where um, we could, uh, you know, sort of present the opportunity to take advantage of a growing trend in the U.S. technology space and really get ahead of some of their competitors. And so we we expanded really early on into Japan as well as into Australia, New Zealand, and Southeast Asia and and Europe. And for us, those were um, really valuable markets and enabled us to sort of um, establish a footprint um, way ahead of the curve, which has been and been really valuable for us. Yeah, a couple of um, lessons I reflect on in those early days as well is um, two things. So one, from a sort of product and engineering perspective, um, this is a, a tactic we employed at the early days of ATG that we then redeployed at Brightcove, and I think is a really classic playbook for this class of um, enterprise software, which is essentially identifying a set of strategic mm -hmm. design partners where you essentially even though your product isn't yet complete, you deliver a solution to that um, customer, even if it requires a lot of professional services, custom engineering, and sort of like duct tape and bailing wire. Um, um, and so at the early days of Brightcove, we were in some ways we're almost like a custom engineering shop where we would build and deliver, let's say an entirely new video portal for discovery communications. Um, but through that process, we kind of learned of like what the requirements were and what the needs were. And we were very sort of methodical of identifying what components of the solution we're delivering could be repeatable and could be built into reusable product and what really was a one-off um, for a particular client. And so by continually doing those projects um, month over month, quarter over quarter, year over year, we actually built a really robust platform that could, that was quite flexible um, and could meet the needs of a variety of different uh, clients. So I think that from a, a product engineering roadmap is, is really critical. It's just like sometimes just building something for a customer, even if it's not like a turnkey product is actually an amazing um, learning process. It helps generate revenue, customer references and, yeah. and all the like. Yeah. Right. The second item was um, sort of the power of storytelling and sort of being a thought leader very, very early in an industry. And one of Jeremy's superpowers is he is an amazing storyteller. He definitely is, um, yeah. And he, yeah, and he always like he always has a vision around where the world is going to be in the future, um, and and part of my job was like, well, how do we actually get there? Um, you know, on a on a quarter by quarter, year by year basis, and so even though we were like a nascent company with like not real product or anything like that, like Jeremy was out there and we, pro we actually invested heavily in like PR and conference speaking and, 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 and that got the name out about Brightcove in a really interesting way whenever general press would talk about this nascent internet television or the future of online video, they always talked about Brightcove. Um, and so it was essentially free marketing 
by using thought leadership and writing and conference speaking and sort of really engaging with journalists and kind of telling them our vision of what the future is like. And I think that really helps set us up um, to be an industry leader um, way before we were you know, really prepared to be. Um, and I think that is also a tactic that many startups uh, could play, particularly if they're sort of inventing or, or, or transforming. Uh, and, and he just has a knack for transfer. I mean, he was evangelizing Bitcoin when, you know, it would, like now it's Bitcoins everywhere. But I mean, this is years and years and years ago. He was out on the conference circuit explaining that this is the future of currency. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's like I said, uh, we would joke internally that um, Jeremy has like um, Jedi mind powers uh, and, and, and we got good at recognizing when he was deploying those <laughs> tactics on us uh, and be like, no, Jeremy, we don't have time to do that. Um, but he uh, he is an incredible uh, visionary and sort of technology leader yeah, in that regard. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess just to underscore one or two of Bob's points um, and, and maybe expand a little, I mean, in terms of the go-to-market, you know, part of the playbook, in addition to what Bob was saying and, and extrapolating one point, was definitely, um, you know, sort of taking referenceability um, as, as a, a leading, you know, a leading edge into a market, right? And so um, going after and being, being intentional about going after sort of key accounts and customers in a market um, to set us up for all the subsequent dialogues, you know, which, which are the, you know, so for example, in, in, in the US, you know, our literally our first customer was the New York Times. Wow, yeah. So, you know, being able to tell folks like, look, you know, we're, this is what's coming in terms of media. The New York Times is doing it. They're trusting us with their content. That was incredibly important. And, you know, we, we did that in a number of different segments. You know, we, we signed up the big record labels and, and that led to, you know, a number of other, another, a number of other accounts. We did the same thing in Japan, you know, our, our, our first client was a consortium of the large um, broadcasters. Um, and that, you know, gave us a, a, a credibility, I would say, walking into other customers. Um, so that was just incredibly important. The other thing which um, I often tell um, some of our founders in the Argonne portfolio is that, you know, you do have to be careful um, if the go-to-market strategy is to sign up early customers who are, you know, large, important, referenceable customers. Um, you have to be successful with them. And um, you know there is a, a customer tax that comes along with um, you know those early accounts. Um, you, you, you know you 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 have to support them. You can't fail them, um, and that does limit your ability to continue to develop product in different ways um, or to deploy resources. Um, and so that that was one thing that you know I, I think we we did a pretty good job at Brightcove in sort of managing the balance between you know figuring out how to deploy referenceability as a, an important go-to-market strategy, um, but managing the customer tax in a way that you know we didn't sort of fall down and, and kept our eye on the on the long-term vision. Obviously, the execution did happen because you scaled and hit hyper growth and got to the point where you went public. So what was that like? I mean, I, I know it's a, it's a milestone in a company. It's not the end of the road. I mean, the road is still going on with Brightcove. Uh, but, well, you know, that's a pretty special accomplishment. So what was that like? Well, uh, funny enough, Andy and I actually wrote our S1 together. Oh, you, um, uh, you did? <laughs> so, uh, well, <laughs> 
Uh, you know, and I think it was, you know, perhaps that, you know, we like to joke, even with Argon, our, our new fund, it's like we're two sides of the same coin. So it's like, how do you evoke the product vision of what we want to do as a company within an S1 um, while having the pragmatic, practical, um, you know, business metrics and, and legal structure and governance? Um, uh, so I think Andy and I complement each other uh, that way. Um, you know, I think as, as I've been very fortunate, you know, I've worked for two startups, both going public, um, and they are, you know, these really interesting moments of kind of just reflecting back and, and feeling, you know, proud of what you've built um, from nothing, um, you know, just an idea. Um, and, and obviously, you know, there's financial success that, that comes with that as well. And, and if you're as fortunate enough to find that in the startup community, that enables you to have more freedom, right? So you can actually take more risk, right? So because of my early success at ATG, I was I had the privilege of being able to just like quitting my job and going starting a new company and going for break going to Brightcove. With Brightcove's success, you know, I started reflecting on um, what I had done at ATG and Brightcove and and had helped you know perhaps create at least you know a few hundred new jobs um, uh, in in the local uh, industry and. If I wanted to do that in order of magnitude bigger, how would I go about doing that? Um, and I, around that time, I got connected to the Techstars program and started advising and um, in angel investing in other startups and thought, well, maybe I could go work with other founders um, to help them build successful companies, which would create more jobs. And so once again, I, I had the privilege to be able to like, I just, you know, literally a few months after our IPO in 2012, quit Bright Cove just had the luxury and, and the good fortune to be able to go figure that out and see if it was something that I, I wanted to do. Yeah, you, you know, in terms of the question about going public, um, uh, I mean, first of all, just a, a quick little anecdote. I remember, I, I remember Jeremy and I um, very late at night, one night um, before we made the final decision to go public, um, in front of a fireplace in the dead of winter, um, you know, having an endless conversation about whether we should or we shouldn't, whether now is the right time or not the right time. And you never, you never really know. Um, and, and, and right time, this is 2012? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Well, the decision would have been 2011. probably in 2011. Yeah, it was in 2011. Yeah. Um, and actually the day we first tried to file our S1 um, was uh, the day that there was an earthquake in Eastern Virginia and the SEC office was actually shut down and rejected <laughs> or attempt to file the S1, um, which put us back by about a month. It was sort of a crazy anecdote. But anyway, you know, one thing that, that you know, I've, I've thought about this a lot and I think that um, a lot of times people make the mistake of thinking about going public as sort of a destination in and of itself or a, or a goal. And, you know, looking back on it, um, I really think that it's important to think about going public as, you know, does it make sense as a means to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish? And, you know, some of the things that, that come along with going public are um, certainly it's a capital raise and, and that's important. There are other alternatives to, to going public to uh, accomplish capitalization goals, um, but it, it can be a very effective one. Um, another might be um, to provide, um, uh, you know, certainty and transparency for potential customers. Um, you know, it really does give you um, a, a significant advantage to walk into, you know, the C-suite of a very large potential customer and say, you know, unlike all 
of the alternatives for the technology that we're talking about you you acquiring or licensing or whatever it may be, you know, you can see, you know, what our financials are, you can understand how we're organized. And, and that may be a real differentiating um, uh, point. And that can be really important. Um, and, and yes, of course, I mean, providing liquidity for people who have worked so hard for so long can be really important too. Um, but understanding it as a, as a, as a means and a vehicle rather than a destination in and of itself, I think is really important for founders. Now, fast forward a little bit. So you were, uh, became CEO of Brightco. So what was that experience like of being a, a CEO of a publicly traded company? And, and what did you learn from that? Yeah, I, I learned I really wanted to work with Bob in a very small, early stage environment. <laughs> um, no, look, um, you know, I, I, um, I, I had a great experience. I learned a tremendous amount. Now um, and I think you know we 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 did some good things um, and there were parts of the experience that I loved. Um, you know it, it was it didn't happen right after the IPO. I um, had had the the great fortune to be successful with a, leading a lot of our international businesses and. Um, after Jeremy left um, and David Mandels came in, um, both of them had been terrific, um, both mentors and sponsors of mine, and they let me um, really um, take on a lot of responsibility, which, which was fantastic for me. I learned a lot. Um, I gained the board's trust. Um, and, you know, when it was time to, to, to move into the role, um, you know, for me, um, it, it, it felt, um, you know, pretty, pretty natural in a sense. Um, because, you, you know, I knew the teams really well, I knew the business really well, I wasn't coming into an environment that I didn't know. Um, and I had a lot of support. Um, you know, I actually really enjoyed a portion of it that I think converts over to, to Argonne in a way. Um, I really enjoyed um, uh, things which other CEOs of public companies I've heard, you know, um, describe that they hate. And that was, I really enjoyed the conversations um, that you have every quarter with both the analysts and the investors, um, because they, they ask you questions about your business um, and about the market um, that they're interested in, and you, you have to answer them. They're, they're the owners or the, or the analysts of the, of, of the company. Um, and a lot of CEOs who, who I've spoken to say they really hate it because they think that um, either the investors or the analysts aren't asking the right questions, um, to which my, my perspective is, well, but they're the owners and they're the ones who really care. Um, and, you know, you need to be able to answer their questions um, and understand what they're really interested in knowing um, and, and being able to explain yourself in ways that that they understand. And, and I think that that's been really helpful in many ways with, with Argonne, um, because we, we both have to be able to explain to um, our LPs, you know, what we're doing and why we're doing it and why it's important, as well as to, to founders who um, ask us to consider, um, you know, making investments. Um, you know, why are we doing it? Um, what do we see? What's important to us? Um, and sort of having that understanding has been very valuable. Um, you, you know, parts of being a CEO, and, and like I said, I, I, I could go long, so forgive me and cut me off whenever you want. Um, but, you know, parts of being a CEO that I really loved was, um, uh, you know, helping um, other people achieve sort of their, their goals within the organization. 
um, what they're doing, whether it's the business strategy or having the resources to build what they're trying to build. Um, you really, as a CEO of, of, a, of a, at least a public company, at, at best, maybe you're an enabler if you're doing your job well. Um, maybe you're setting very high level strategy, um, but your ability you know, individually to make things happen is, is limited in some ways by the fact that you need to get the entire organization to come along with you and you can't really you know, sort of turn the ship on a, on a dime. And so you, you, know, you have to support people and get their buy-in. And, um, you know, and, and at the same time, those are some things that I did find frustrating about being a CEO. You know, you could have insight in, and really understand what the, the best choices were, but, you know, to, to get the company moving in that direction um, is no trivial matter. So anyway. Well, let's talk about the, uh, you know, the, the investing side of, of what the two of you are up to. Um, uh, Bob, you had mentioned, you know, you, you were involved with Techstars and you were part of Project 11 with Katie Ray and Reed, but uh, now the two of you started a new venture firm called Argon. So so what led the two of you down the path of creating a firm and, you know, share all the details behind what you guys are doing? Yeah. So, um, you know, I have been investing now for eight years. Um, uh, my early hypothesis of like, can I be effective? Would I find it fun? Um, you know, it was sort of proven out within Techstars and, and Project 11. And I think Project 11 as a, as a fund, um, has some amazingly interesting uh, companies like Climacell and Wise Systems, Elemental Machines. Um, uh, and, and that sort of predicated some ideas I had around uh, a new fund. Um, and so I, uh, I wanted to get Andy involved. Um, uh, uh, you know, fun anecdote, the, the week I sort of called him up and said, hey, do you want to go launch a, a fund together? That was the same week the board of uh, Brightcove asked him to step in to be the CEO for uh, a year. Uh, and so I was, I, I've always wanted to go work with Andy again. And so I actually told him, go do that. Like, I'll, I'll be patient. It's totally fine. Like, there aren't many circumstances where you can be at the founding of a company and be the CEO of that same public company. And I thought it would be a great um, experience uh, for him. And so fortunately I was able to, you know, uh, convince him after he gave up his year uh, being the CEO uh, to join me with Argonne. And, and we actually spent probably about six, maybe nine months just trying to figure out like, where do we want to provide authentic value? Where do we think um, there's sort of greenfield opportunity? Um, and where can we have some impact? You know, because there, there has been an explosion of seed funds. And for us, um, this notion of where we can provide authentic value was like sort of, uh, you know, sort of resonated with us. And so we really wanted to lean into our personal experiences of building products and companies. Um, oftentimes focus in the enterprise space. Um, you know, given my background in engineering and product, like leaning into hard technology, deep technology, sort of, you know, you know where, where, where technology can be a true differentiator. Um, and then essentially take a leadership role. I think there is a, um, a there's a dearth of early stage, uh, you know, VC leadership where people will kind of like step up um, and say, let's go build this thing together. Um, and that was the, the role and the mission that we kind of set ourselves uh, out for. So we actually just celebrated our one year um, anniversary of the first close um, last March. Um, 
right before the pandemic hit hard. So we weren't expecting um, that, but uh, we've had um, an amazing, um, you know, last year, you know, obviously being very grateful that we have the flexibility of being able to adapt um, so readily and, and that entrepreneurism is alive and well. I mean, there are amazing founders and companies um, and we've been uh, very appreciative of the warm introductions to amazing founders from other founders we've worked with, our friends starting new companies um, or other investors that have kind of uh, connected us with, with founders over the last year. So we've actually closed on eight investments, I think in the last 12 months. Yep. Um, and we've led these pre-seed deals um, in nearly every circumstance. Um, and it's been uh, very fun. Um, and we love the founders we work with. So, so what's the uh, typical deal size? Like is, I mean, you see like all, like C doesn't mean seed anymore. A round doesn't mean A round. And it's just like, the, the, used to remember like, I don't know, like five to 7 million was like an A round. Now it's like 30 million. Sometimes you see $30 million seed and you're like, what is that? Like, like so it's just crazy. Yeah, I think, uh, I think maybe I heard this um, phrase from Rob Go, where it's like seed is a gradient, um, uh, you know, and, 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 I, and I think the seed stage, if you were to say, we typically see around two or three funding rounds before a company is really kind of honed in on product market fit. And in many ways, I think product market fit is sort of the, the bellwether of uh, a tr what would be called a series A investment. Um, and I think hitting product market fit is indicative of some velocity and acceleration in sales and sort of these other sort of business metrics. But fundamentally we're investing pre-revenue, often pre-product, sometimes literally at company formation. Um, and so those round sizes can anywhere be from, you know, a few hundred thousand to maybe a couple of million dollars. Um, in a few circumstances, we've catalyzed deals and led syndicates where the founder originally had a plan of raising, let's say, you know, one to 1.5 million, but been well oversubscribed. Um, and it's nice to kind of, you know, see that uh, happen as well. So they have a bit more resources than they were uh, anticipating. Now, are there particular, you know, areas that you're interested in, whether it's technology or industry, like where's kind of the strike zone for what you guys are targeting? Yeah, sure. So um, our, and, and, and this goes back to um, uh, a lot of the research that Bob and I did before we, before we went to market, um, you know, our thesis is in a, a category we call intelligent industry solutions. And so that's really about the um, applied deployment of deep or emerging technology to specific industry verticals. Um, and so what, what we sort of observed both before our research and in our research is that, you know, um, in, in Boston in particular, but in many places over the last, you know, five to 10 years, there have been sort of enormous um, investments in research and development in what we would call sort of broad horizontal um, platforms or emerging technologies like artificial intelligence and um, robotics control layers uh, and, and, you know, sort of advanced cloud computing, et cetera. And, um, you know, we concluded that, you know, starting as recently as just a, a year or so ago, those technologies had um, matured enough so that they were now able to be deployed as real solution sets to create value in existing industries. 
Um, and that was sort of interesting to us. And so, you know, examples include digital um, healthcare technologies, um, you know, machine and manufacturing um, applications, um, you know, in a number of different places. Um, and um, just to tie it quickly together to, to sort of Bob and I, um, you know, one of the one of the reasons I joined Brightcove when I did was, and I'm going way back now, was um, although I was fascinated by the opportunity, I asked Bob in my interview, you know, how he decided what he wanted to, to build. He was a smart guy and they were well-resourced and he could build anything. And Bob said, I wanna build things that customers wanna buy and use. Um, and so when we talked about Argon, and we saw the dynamic of what was happening in, in technology these days, we sort of realized, you know, it's not just investing in technology for technology's sake um, that we were interested in. We we're interested in opportunities to invest in founders who were bringing, you know, sort of real special knowledge about both the technology on the one hand, but also particular vertical domains and figuring out how to apply the new technology in ways that created new value for existing industries. And so for, for us, that's very interesting and exciting. And like I said, we, we see that we've got investments in digital healthcare technology, um, in um, uh, uh, machine and manufacturing. Um, we, we actually have a relatively recent investment um, in, um, what I would call space technology, but the reality is we're not investing in building rockets or, or, or payloads or anything like that, but rather a software application um, that's needed for really um, tasking and logistics of how low earth orbit satellites are, are used and deployed. And so, you know, it's something that we have a lot of familiarity and it just happens to be in a in a different mil milieu with, you know, a lot of novel, novel challenges and, and interesting opportunities. Does that make sense? It does. How, how'd you come up with the name? Ah. Um, <laughs> so um, as, as any new endeavor uh, begins, a lot of brainstorming, um, there were some key elements that sort of came together. So um, we wanted to, once again, sort of focus on sort of the sciencey, engineering, geeky side. So, you know, Argon obviously is a, is a noble element. Um, we also, in our model, like when we, when we work with a team, like we're very active, like we get really engaged and that can be, you know, literally providing suggestions in shared Google Docs to sort of doing deep dives in product reviews, strategy, um, or what, whatever the sort of the custom needs, uh, the, um, the, the founders need. In some ways, we're almost like an on-demand executive team to kind of fill gaps um, as they're building out their own leadership. Um, and so in that model uh, of high engagement, if you apply energy uh, to the argon gas, it has this beautiful glow. So sort of representative of the, you know, how we can add energy uh, to a system and, and activate it. Um, the atomic symbol is AR, Andrew and Robert. Um, uh, so that's a subtle reference uh, to us as founders. Um, but perhaps the most uh, important reason is that there was a reasonable domain name that was uh, readily available that wasn't too expensive. It all comes down um, to it. And so, that's, yeah, that's the yeah, exactly. So, yeah. 
Yeah, so all those components uh, led us uh, and, to and, that and more. My understanding is that uh, argon constitutes only one percent of the Earth's atmosphere, and so the idea of being in the in the top one percent we thought was was very compelling. Ah, and okay. and of course, it starts with an A. And my father once told me that. You know, if you're ever picking a name for the business, make sure it starts with the first letter in the alphabet, so, you, so that you're first in the yellow pages, which of course doesn't matter nowadays. But yeah, that's someone said that recently on the podcast too. That that's you know, it's good, better than having that than having the W, because exactly. then you'll be at the bottom of the list. But um, so, how do you how does an entrepreneur get on your radar to uh, potentially you know explore making an investment? Yeah, I mean, um, obviously, a lot of a lot of the opportunities that we engage with come through referrals. Um, and so I think, you know, certainly looking at our network of, of founders that we've worked with, not only within Argonne, but my past history of Project 11 and being part of the Techstars community, there's, there's often a really, you know, easy way to find a connection and, and to kind of get that uh, warm referral. Um, we also sort of are actively involved in sort of uh, connecting with new networks, um, particularly around areas around sort of diversity and inclusion. So I'm involved with um, a Black VC Slack community. Um, we, um, uh, I volunteer in the Hack Diversity Program, um, uh, where sort of mentor, you know, um, underrepresented minorities in software engineering and the like. And so we take a sort of a balanced approach of um, leveraging sort of the decades of our network that have been built over time and and sort of the compounded value of how that network provides us really amazing sort of deal flow and, and connections with founders, while also trying to get plugged into unconventional um, uh, and unexpected networks. Um, because at the end of the day, the venture business model is based on people that have radically new ideas. Um, and if you just cement yourself into a worldview where it's the same people or the same ideas or the same um, thoughts, um, you're not gonna be able to maximize the opportunity of creating um, amazing new business. Yes. And we have a new website and there's a, a submission place there too. And, and we're happy to take a look at anything people submit. So the uh, the Boston tech scene, there's a lot going on. It's very vibrant. So what, so what, are, you, what are you excited about? Like it uh, could be, you know, could be a company outside your portfolio. It could be, hey, we've seen a lot of deep expertise in cybersecurity, right? Like clusters. Like, what, what are you excited about? I think one of the things I've been excited about is the number of people that have been quitting things and starting mm, new okay. things. That's good. Um, and perhaps, the, perhaps that's a reflection of COVID and people being intentional around how they want to spend their time or how they want to organize their life. Um, but I think there is an inflection point of, of once again, kind of people taking a step back and reflecting upon what they've learned or some of their um, observations around how the world is reorganizing and starting to take the leap of like, oh, there's an opportunity to do something new and different um, here. Um, and, you know, like I said, the number of sort of new connections, new startups, um, new founders, even if it's not a good fit for us to invest, um, there's incredible people that are focused on really sort of key challenges um, that our society and, and world faces. Um, and, and those that just love to geek out on a, like a very, very esoteric, like tangible problem. 
but it's really kind of a wedge into like a broader uh, market uh, disruption. Um, but anyways, yeah, anyway, no, what, what I mean, you... in, in the similar vein, and and then maybe I'll, I'll also add a couple of specifics, but in a, in a similar vein, I am sort of blown away by how there's an evolution to people who are getting really involved in what I would call mission-driven mission or um, passion-driven endeavors. Um, and, um, you know, we, you know, there, there are lots of challenges in the world and, and you know, obviously it's been a, a very um, tumultuous, um, you, you know, number of, of, of a couple of years actually. And the fact that, you know, people are now applying sort of all of this entrepreneurial energy and, and a tremendous amount of, there are so many smart people in the world, um, intelligence to thinking how they can make a dent in the way the world should be um, and, 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 you know, addressing a lot of, you know, real problems and trying to figure out business models that are sustainable alongside of those. So for me, that's incredibly exciting and, and in, in some ways fulfilling to be able to, to help in, in that endeavor. Um, so that's great. Um, you know, I, I, in terms of just some specifics, I mean, areas that, that we've seen really exploding, I mean, no secret, but like, especially in Boston, digital um, health tech is, is exploding. We, you know, see an enormous number of uh, 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 ideas there. Um, uh, I'm, I'm only, you know, sort of half laughing at this notion of space. Um, I mean, it sounds so otherworldly and modern, but um, there really is a lot going on there. Um, I think that um, developing applications for what I would call sort of earthbound or terrestrial um, value um, from uh, the space economy, I think is, is something that we're gonna be seeing more of. Um, you know, there, there are some things um, in, um, I guess I'd call it media, but um, you know we, you know things about detecting um, synthetic media and um, identifying where truth lies and where it doesn't. Um, those are really interesting to us, um, and we we hope to see more of that as well. And and then just you know ways in which this new access to data and and technology is enabling existing industries really to create new value is, is fascinating to watch unfold. Um, and there's really an astonishing amount of, of value that's being created that way. So um, for us, that's really exciting. Yeah, one of the things that um, we've tried to do on our website um, at argon.vc is actually put some points of inspiration, which are like, here are interesting ideas or trends that we're paying attention mm -hmm. to. And it's almost like, you know, requests for startups. Like if you're working in this space or you're thinking about these similar sets of problems, like touch base with us because um, we think that there are some really um, big opportunities to kind of build uh, you know, new platforms uh, in this regard. And, and like I said, like oftentimes we've worked with founders even months before they're uh, ready to raise their first capital. So it's kind of never too early um, to get engaged and, and to build a relationship. And that, that's great heads up. Yeah, because the inspiration part of your website definitely breaks down each of those categories in, in detail. So if you're an entrepreneur, you should definitely be checking that out, see if there's a strong alignment. So outside of, uh, outside of investing, what do you uh, like to do for fun? 
Um, as I mentioned early on, I, I, I've found a, a, a very strong passion for being outdoors and being in nature. Um, so that's a really strong component of my life. Um, uh, I've been averaging hiking on the trails around town about five miles a day um, uh, during the pandemic. Um, I go for bike rides on occasion. Um, we'll be going, you know, skiing, um, you know, later this year. Uh, in the summer, I actually uh, race a small sailboat. So you know, sort of being very sort of active outdoors in the wind and, and, and the season. I even like shoveling snow because it's a good excuse to be outside uh, in the winter um, with some physical activity. Um, so that's, you know, my wife and I, we go take our dogs out for walks and the like. Um, we, we do like to travel a lot. So that's one of the things I'm missing the most um, and looking forward um, hopefully in, in the coming years is to get back out and explore all the interesting places um, across the globe. What about you, Andy? Yeah, so notwithstanding the fact that, that you know, Bob's um, professional or domain sort of background is um, uh, in, in many ways, not the same as mine, you know, coming from a different background. Um, outside of outside of Argonne, I think we're we're peas in a pod. Um, so um, very very similar. Um, you know, if a day goes by that I'm not outside doing something, whether it's running on trails, uh, which I love to do, or hiking or biking, um, I'm pretty unhappy. So um, you know, I'll get up as early as early as I need to 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 you know get outdoors and get a couple miles on the trails. Um, I love to read. Um, I am also getting more and more involved in, in the kitchen and making things and being very tactile. And so I, I bake bread and I try to master the art of wood-fired pizza, but coming from, coming from New Haven, which um, I'll claim as the epicenter of great pizza. It sure is, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I have, a, I have a, high, a high bar, which I'm nowhere near achieving. <laughs> very, very cool. Bob and Andy, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through all these great stories of building companies, what you're doing as investors, and obviously all the, the great advice for other entrepreneurs to follow. Thanks for having us. This has been a lot of fun. Well, thank you, Keith. Uh, it's been uh, so much fun uh, uh, listening to your podcast over the years, and I've learned a lot. So I appreciate all the time and energy that you do in investing and in, in putting out this content with it for our community. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.